So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know, like a father with his, so for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then Patty's going to come and share with us some what we can understand from this part of the Bible. Please pray with me. Our God and Father, we thank you for the freedom we have to meet on campus. We thank you that we have your word, the Bible, and that it is understandable to us. We pray now that you might be speaking through Paddy, such that his words may be your words and our hearts may be radically changed to continue to live in service of you. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Uh, uh, just, as you're, um, just as you're getting ready, can I encourage you to have a copy of the Bible open in front of you? Uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, then maybe just nudge your friend or your neighbour and uh, see if they are, are willing, hopefully they will be, uh, to share the passage that we've just read. Uh, that's one of the things that we do regularly at public meetings is that uh, we come together and we read the Bible. I'm just going to fix this off the mic. Uh, can you hear me? Is that any better or not? Back. That's a bit better. Yep, is that better? Okay. Uh, can I, um, too, um, I just while I'm sort of uh, getting ready and while you're getting ready, uh, once again endorse the Next Steps Conference, 
uh, other than being one of the most imaginative invitations to a conference I think I've ever seen, that plane ticket, uh, I can I encourage you to try and set aside that evening uh, on the 9th of September uh, because it will do you well in terms of thinking about expanding your horizons about where uh, you may end up, particularly after you uh, move on from university, wherever that's going to be. And it will be a great opportunity for you to also be exposed to a couple of different opportunities, some of which sort of in your normal course of life, in whatever church sphere you move in, in whatever sort of conference, sort of junkie attendance you head towards, uh, you might not be exposed to. Yes, there are other things outside of uh, your own little church and all of the conferences that you go to. Uh, this will be one opportunity to do that. Uh, the second shameless plug is that um, apparently we have some Your God hoodies left over. Not very many, and we're going to sell the last 20 or so of them for $15 each. Only this week. So if you really intended on getting one and for whatever reason you just never got around to it, today, after public meetings, is your opportunity to do it. If maybe you've lost yours during mission and you really want one so that you can pull it out and show it to your children, <laughs> uh, or maybe you just collect them. Uh, there's a couple of us in the room who tend to collect, as my wife calls them, God shirts. Uh, then maybe you might like to buy another hoodie. They're available afterwards. Okay? Uh, last week, when we looked at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, um, I suggested that Paul, in writing the letter, uh, really dealt with three significant ideas. Now, last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, and the three big ideas were, firstly, concerning the future, secondly, this question of what is it that we're passionate about, and thirdly, have you been converted? Uh, the three big ideas went sort of something like this. Firstly, I think, as you read through the letter to the 1 Thessalonians, Paul, in his understanding of where the world is heading, picks up on three particular aspects. Firstly, as you can see there on the screen, the return of Jesus, the salvation of God's people, and a time of God's wrath or God's anger. The return of Jesus, the salvation of God's people, and a time of God's wrath or God's anger. Uh, these three broad realities are something that shapes Paul's direction in life and something that actually shapes his passion which is why last week I want to try and suggest to you what is it that you are passionate about? What is it that you spend your time doing? What is it that consumes your thinking? Because in many respects, the thing that you are passionate about underlies where you think the world is heading. And the challenge I think from last week as we started looking at this letter to 1 Thessalonians is are you passionate about what God is passionate about? And so for some of us, I think that means we need to become passionate about what God is passionate about. And that actually will require a lot of sort of rewiring of where, where we think our priorities should be and it will actually involve some possibly emotional, financial and time pain. Uh, these are not things to be avoided, but rather these are things to be looked at head on and confronted by. And what I suggested to you was that all oh, this is tied up in this broad question that I was asking, which is, have you been converted? Because if you flip back to chapter 1, we see very clearly that in chapter 1, verse 9, that in Paul's experience of meeting and confronting those who were unbelievers, to then hearing the word of God which comes in power and a work of the Holy Spirit, that their conversion is made apparent because they turn, in chapter 1, verse 9, to God from idols and then serve the living and true God. They turn to God from idols and they now serve the living and true God. So my question for us again today is, have you been converted? And one of the things that we're going to do now as we explore this particular passage that was written for us is we'll get a bit of a sense of 
what this actually means in a little bit more detail. So this week, here are the four things that I want to try and look at in this passage. Firstly, I'd like to try and cover Paul's motivation. What is it that drives the Apostle Paul? Secondly, how is Paul when he is with them, i.e. when he is with the Thessalonians? Thirdly, what do we learn about the nature of conversion? Because there may be some of us here who aren't Christians, who have come along to public meeting either first time last week after the Your God events, or this is your first time this week, in which case a warm welcome once again. We're really pleased that you're able to join us. Can I encourage you to keep coming and wrestling with the challenges that the Word of God makes on your life? And so the third point today is we're going to be looking at the nature of conversion. And lastly, I want to propose, if we get time, which hopefully we will, that, you know, chapter 2, at least the first 16 verses of 1 Thessalonians, actually give us a very helpful model of what it means for Christian service. So let's look firstly at Paul's motivation. What is his motivation that we see coming through from 1 Thessalonians? Well, I want to say first and foremost, once again, as we unpack this particular section of the letter, we see that it's placed in the broad framework of the certainty of the return of Christ, the assurance of salvation because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and Paul has a deep, deep passion that people avoid the wrath of God. I'll say it again. Paul is driven by the certainty of the return of Christ, This is not sort of wish-fulfilment language. This is a certainty. Secondly, the assurance of salvation found only in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And thirdly, do we see, once again, Paul's passion for people to avoid the wrath of God. Now, the challenge for us as we read through the text is to work out, will we take Paul at his word? Or will we sort of somehow want to reinterpret what Paul says so that it suits our context? Uh, Let me encourage you just to flip to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 to 2. Because Paul gives this challenge to his hearers. Both those whom he writes to in the first century, because he writes back to this church at Thessalonica, and also to those of us today and down through the centuries who are the hearers of of the words that Paul writes. Here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 to 2. Finally, brothers... Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul's motivation is that those who hear his word might be encouraged, particularly if they're believers, to live in a manner in which they are already living. The assumption being is that these people who are believers have turned from idols and are now living to please the true and living God. And so Paul is saying is, as you started in that fashion, so continue in that fashion. But notice also the claim that Paul makes there in chapter 4, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul is one who has been given a particular authority from God, from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's letter, not just chapter 2, but all of his letters, 1 Thessalonians and all of his other writings, is not simply a way of describing what was taking place in the churches, although yes, it does do that. But in writing, Paul is reminding his hearers, both then and now, which, friends, is us, of his God-given apostolic authority. Thus, when we read the words of Paul, we are reading the words of God spoken to us through his servant, our apostle, Paul. 
So the first challenge is, will we take Paul seriously? Will we read his word and commit to live a life that follows the instruction that he gives because he speaks with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? So what then is it that drives Paul? Well, firstly, we've seen that he has an underlying framework. Now, before we get to him being an approved workman and entrusted with the gospel, we do well just to remind ourselves of the situation. Remember the situation last week that we looked at in Acts chapter 17, where Paul arrives in the city of Thessalonica. And I thought, seeing as though I can, I'll show you some slides. This is the city of Thessalonica, uh, taken from a hotel that I stayed at last year. Uh, My wife was over there speaking at a conference, and I had the great joy and privilege of having to stay in this hotel for most of the week. (laughs) It was really very nice. Uh, So this is sort of the view looking back up to the hills. Sort of Thessalonica is sort of in a a nice little basin, surrounded by hills on either side. Here's another view, uh, looking back down from the hill down towards the bay. This is in the middle of summer, so it's about, I don't know, 35, 38 degrees. Stinking hot, but actually it's really rather nice. Uh, Particularly by the pool in the hotel. Um, (laughs) uh, One of the other things you'll notice about the city is it's got this fairly decent wall all the way around it. You can see some remnants of it here on the right-hand side. That wall actually used to run all the way down to the coast. And then right up on top of the hill is a sort of fortress, which um, most of which still stands. But the interesting thing, I'm not going to give you all the slides, is uh, this is a little plaque. Uh, I'm not going to read this out verbatim. You can read this while I'm talking. This is a plaque that they've erected at a particular uh, tourist site, uh, which is I'm about to show you some slides of. And basically what it does is it makes mention of the Apostle Paul. Now, this is not particularly a Christian site or a religious site, uh, but it's worth noting here down in this uh, uh, bottom paragraph here that Paul visits the site and is asked to preach at the Agora's podium. The Agora is this sort of large expanse, the slides of which I'm about to show you. His request is denied because of all the pagans there. Now remember when we read this back in Acts chapter 17, Paul was actually very keen to go and speak in the public square, but because of the riot, he was permitted from doing so, which is why he'd first gone and spoken at the synagogue. Uh, Let me show you the Agora where Paul may have spoken. Okay. In case you're looking for a plaque or something you can stand on and take photos, there's no such thing. This is the sign they've got that shows you the Agora. You know, it's fairly sort of Roman, uh, the Roman Forum in its its scope. Uh, Here's a picture of what it looks like underneath. It's actually reasonably well preserved in in parts. Uh, This is actually really nice and cool out of the shade, surprisingly. Uh, This is what the Agora looked like. You know, it's sort of an amphitheatre at one end. And this would have been the place where they would have held public gatherings. And if there hadn't have been a riot, Paul would have been allowed to speak here. Now, the next slide gives you a bit of a scope of it. And so the Agora is this sort of end right down the end with the tiered seating. For those of you who are playing at home and uh, who wonder whether or not I am married because you've never seen my wife, she's actually there in the photo. Those who have eyes to see, now is your chance. Have you found her? Okay, good. And if you missed her, you'll have to come back tomorrow, okay, when I see the same slides, okay? So this is Paul visiting probably, but not definitely, that area of geography. Presumably, he walked around that space. And it is a little bit, you know, the sort of the tingles go up and down the spine a little bit where you go, actually, what I read in the Bible took place 2,000 years ago or thereabouts in this geographic location, most likely. Okay, there may have been other Agora's Roman forums in Thessalonica, but this is the one that's the most significant one. Uh, This is presumably where Paul walked where Paul engaged with people. We don't know where the synagogue was. There's no, as far as I can tell, or as far as I could find in all my travels, uh, there's no particular archaeological reference to it. But as Paul preaches Christ in this particular city, we see that he suffers persecution. And despite the suffering, he preaches wherever he goes. And we saw that today, didn't we? When we look in chapter 2, verses 2 to 6, 
Notice, notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, we had previously, previously suffered and been insulted at Philippi, as you know. And so what Paul doesn't do is then go home again. He continues in his journey, and we read there in the rest of verse 2, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Despite the fact that Paul suffers for preaching Christ crucified, he continues to preach Christ crucified. Why does he do this? Is he completely out of his mind? Is he just a sucker for punishment? No, I take it there are two key reasons why Paul does it. Firstly, because Paul has been approved by God. Paul's motive is one of having been given a significant approval. This is not a letter of commendation from the early Christian church, from Jerusalem. This is not purely because his family wished him well in his endeavours. Nor is this because he goes back to his Jewish heritage and claims that because he was raised as a Pharisee and was, uh, spent a lot of time as a rabbi, that this somehow gave him privilege or approval. Now, in this case, the approval that Paul has is the approval from God himself. Now, I take it here that Paul could be referring to a number of things and I think the way I want to go is I think what Paul is thinking back to is the very, very tangible approval that he's been given when he sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. So in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 7, he talks about this, or Luke records the uh, conversion experience of Paul. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, that's Paul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And after that, once he enters the city, he is then essentially commissioned to go and preach to the Gentiles. So Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Or in Galatians chapter 1, for those of you taking notes, he says the following things in verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle one who has received a particular commissioning from God, that's just what the word apostle means. He says they're Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Paul's apostleship comes not from humanity, but rather directly from God. He says a little bit later on in Galatians 1 verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And finally, a little bit later on, in verses 11 to 16, where he retells his own conversion story, he says this, For I would have have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's approval does not come from man. Paul's approval comes solely from God And in this case, I take it, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, and not disconnected from the approval that Paul has been given, is that he has been entrusted with the gospel. 
the good news, the great proclamation. Now, the, the word gospel just means that, great proclamation. It's what comes after that that's important. Here, Paul is entrusted with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great proclamation about this man, Jesus, who is not just a carpenter from Nazareth, who through his death and resurrection has been declared to be both Lord and Christ. See, Paul here has been entrusted with this great news and this, along with his approval from God, is the thing that drives him to now declare this to whomever he encounters. And as you read through his missionary journeys, we see this typified by him going and preaching in the synagogue first to the Jew and as they reject the message, or if they reject the message, which they did on many occasions, Paul then goes and preaches to the Gentiles in the hope that they too would be saved. So you notice here in chapter 2 the features of what it looks like for Paul, someone who has been approved by God and entrusted with the, with the Gospel. See, here in these few verses, Paul, I think, captures beautifully his intent for his time spent at Thessalonica. He states his agenda. It is clearly other person-centred. He goes on to say, as we'll see a little bit later, that what he does, he does not for any form of personal gain. He's not established a great preaching ministry, Apostle Paul Inc., where he stands to gain financially from conversion fees, management fees, royalties, book sales, appearance fees or the like. No, actually in this case, Paul's approval is not from man, but from God. His speech comes with this integrity. And he reminds us that when he speaks, he speaks as an ambassador, one who is speaking on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ to not please man, but to please God. Uh, notice the way in which he expresses this. So in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, he places his boldness in God, in his God. He places his dependence, his trust, and his expectation of his speech and language in the approval he has been given. Not in his own capacity or his own rhetoric. In chapter 2, verse 4, we see here his motivation is to please God and not man. And why does he do this? Well, clearly when he speaks to humanity, many of them are not pleased with what he says. And we see this clearly demonstrated. They try and persecute him. They run him out of town. They try and throw stones at him. They try and beat him. They put him in prison. They... And at every one of those opportunities, whenever he came face to face with someone, I think whom he knew might persecute him, he had a choice, didn't he? He could have spoken the very words of God to him. Or he could have changed the message so that they would accept what he said. And what does he choose to do? Every time. Knowing that he has been approved and entrusted with the gospel, he holds fast and proclaims that message to please God, not man. Notice the manner of his speech in chapter 2, verse 5. He doesn't use flattery. He says it like it is. He tells the Jews that, the, that Jesus is their Messiah which for many of them caused great offence. For many of them did not believe that their Messiah would be one who demonstrates weakness by being put to death. Rather, Paul trusts that God would work through his word and demonstrate his power through Paul's speech. Chapter 2, verse 5. He does not speak with a motive for greed. And you can imagine that in his day, as there were travelling orators who worked around, who sought their living from their great rhetoric or the latest idea or something they'd picked up from a far corner of the known world. 
Some of them presumably made their living quite handsomely from their great rhetorical speeches. Yet not Paul. Paul does not seek wealth as a motive nor greed. Finally, in chapter 2, verse 5, do we see he does not seek glory from people and indeed in chapter 6 as well. So my question here is, if you are going to be one who has received the word of God, how will you speak the word of God? If you are one who has been approved to speak the word of God and entrusted with the gospel, how is it that you will speak those words? What would your motives be? What would your manner of delivery, what would your manner of speech be? Will we remain silent, perhaps because of fear of persecution? Or will we follow the example of our Apostle, Paul, in speaking boldly, knowing that when we speak the Word of God, it's spoken with God's power. The power that brought the universe into creation. The power that continues to sustain the universe. Well, let's move on and look through the passage to see how it is uh, that Paul behaves when he is with them. And here I think we start to see into the heart of Paul. Uh, This week we're going to particularly consider how Paul was when he was with them in the early church. And one of the things we'll do next week when we look at the last part of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 is we'll look at Paul's attitude towards them and his behaviour when he is no longer present with them. So today, how is Paul when he is with them? Well, notice how he starts. Here, chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But a brief visit, as we saw a couple last week in Acts chapter 17, he's there for three, sun, three Sabbaths, three Saturdays. Some might have said, well, actually, Paul's a pretty quick visit. What would you hope to get out of such a quick visit? Where in other places you may have stayed months, if not years. But notice how Paul starts when he's writing to those dear brothers and sisters whom he's writing to. Our visit was not in vain. Why was the visit not in vain? Well, I take it because for Paul, keep in mind his framework, The return of Jesus is certain and any day. God is keen to save those who are his people and gives assurance of that in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Paul is passionate to see people come under the sound of this gospel to repent and believe that they would avoid the coming wrath. So for Paul, I take it that every moment was not in vain when he was able to preach the gospel. So if every moment was not in vain, then three weeks would have been a glorious opportunity for him let alone months or years in other parts where he spoke. See, Paul here knows that the Lord Jesus is returning. He will seek any opportunity to declare the gospel. And that's why his visit, despite how brief it appears, is not in vain. So what do we see here now of Paul's example? Well, clearly Paul, in writing this particular chapter, wants his hearers to remember the way in which he lived among them. The example that he was to them. Uh, We see this in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. He's calling them back to that. We saw it as we read the little passage earlier in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. See, many of us follow examples of other people, don't we? Who are the examples that we follow? Perhaps they are our parents. Perhaps they are siblings maybe those who are older than us. Perhaps they are our peers whom we look to to work out how it is that we should live live rightly in the world. Perhaps it's the culture of the day, some aspects of which we may find particularly appealing or attractive. 
who are you following? Because in some respects, we tend to all be following somebody, whether or not we do it consciously or subconsciously. Paul here is keen to remind his hearers of his and his companions, presumably, because he travelled with others, of their lifestyle while they lived among this early church at Thessalonica. And I take it that he does that so that they would know how to live once Paul had actually moved on and left them. So they would not be left wondering or wanting how it is that they should continue to live despite the fact that Paul is not with them. See, Paul, for Paul, imitation is actually a fairly significant concept. He says it elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, follow my example as I follow that of Christ. Paul is keen that as he imitates Christ, that other believers would then imitate him. Because the Lord Jesus had returned to go to heaven. And so the believers have no tangible way of looking at what this means. I take it here, Paul gives them a tangible expression of what it means to live a holy, godly and blameless life, even for the brief time with which he was with them. And so he writes to them to remind them of his lifestyle while he was among them. And the key metaphor that he uses here is that of a parent. Uh, The metaphor that he uses is both in chapters uh, 2 verse 7, being as a mother, a nursing mother among them, and a little bit later on you'll see down there in chapter 2 verses 10 to 12, where like a father with children, Paul behaves towards them. Notice here in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul is as a nursing mother to them. He is gentle among them. He is that little phrase that I just think is so wonderful in chapter 2, verse 8. He is affectionately desirous. He's not just desirous of these people. He is affectionately desirous of them. As a nursing mother would be. Now, at this point, some of us, I think, will be challenged by this particular verse. Because for some of us, our parents, either our mother or our father, may not have been as affectionately desirous towards us or as patient with us as perhaps we would have liked or as we read in the Scriptures, perhaps as God would have had them be. And part of the reality for that is because we live in a disobedient world where parents don't always get it right. And I, for one, am happy to recognise that as a parent, I don't always get it right. Uh, Maybe if at some point in the future you have the opportunity of becoming a parent, you will clearly recognise the challenge of being a good parent and maybe you will come to the same conclusion. But if at this point the sort of the notion of thinking about what it means to have parents who are genuinely affectionately desirous causes you some grief, then friends, can I keep pointing you back to your Father in Heaven, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts us as we reflect on what might be very difficult memories or even very current difficult circumstances. And can I encourage you in this challenging time of life, or if you've had these times, to continue to be prayerful, both for your parents, that they would continue to be right and godly parents, and also that for you, that you would seek healing if you've had a difficult upbringing. Friends, here, please do not read back into the text your experience of parenting. Please read the text as it stands and try and feel the words of Paul here. The sense that Paul cares for these people whom he's known but briefly as if they were his own children. 
that Paul does not simply share the gospel with them. He doesn't just arrive and declare this great proclamation. No, he actually shares life with these people. The believers whom have accepted the gospel as it truly is, the word of God. Now, presumably, as Paul and his companions have shared life together, they've shared all of their strengths, but also their weaknesses. Isn't that what it means to share life together? It's not just to show people what you want them to see, but rather to show people who you truly are, at your best and at your worst. And notice here Paul's great concern that he keeps reminding the people about in chapter 2, verse 10. Paul seeks, I take it as much as he is able, to show what it means to live a holy, righteous and blameless life while he is with them. And I think for Paul and for his companions and for us, if we follow his example, this requires great vulnerability. It requires openness and exposure to all aspects of our life. It requires a willingness to be accepted by others for who we truly are and to accept others for who they truly are and a readiness to be committed to them. So deeply running through the passage here in chapter 2 is Paul's lack of selfishness, his clear other person-centredness, his desire for the people whom he's serving in every way. And his desire extends not just to what he does for them, but also how he lives his own life. No double standards here, friends. There is a consistency between the way Paul lives and how he expects his hearers to live. And so we also see this evidence at a number of different points. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul is ready to share himself. In chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he is keen not to be a financial burden on the people whom he's essentially moved in with. When Paul arrives in Thessalonica, unlike my wife and I when we arrived in Thessalonica, we moved into a hotel for the week that we were there. Paul moves into someone's house. Presumably he arrives not knowing anyone. He preaches the gospel. Some people are, in God's kindness, converted. And Paul then goes and stays with them that night. Wow. Imagine that. You wake up one morning, having not maybe heard about the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You go down to the marketplace. There's this crazy bloke from the east who's talking about Jesus. Suddenly you're persuaded that actually this Jesus bloke is Lord. You recognise this. You become a Christian. And then that night you're having dinner with the Apostle Paul. And three weeks later, when Paul leaves, you probably turn to your spouse or your family and you say, well, that was unexpected. (laughs) Or you say, praise be to God that this man came into our life and that the gospel of God radically reshaped it and changed it. But notice Paul's attitude here. Paul is keen to not be a burden on them. Can you imagine if this sort of band of apostles just turned up at your doorstep tonight? No chance to warn your parents. Can I push the illustration? Sure. Let's say four of the Howies turn up. (laughs) They're going to move in with you just for a couple of weeks as they preach the gospel on campus and to you and to your family. See, what does Paul do here? Paul moves in for a couple of weeks and he does not want to be a burden on them financially. So he makes sure he provides for himself in this case. He goes to some length to ensure that he is not a burden on those to whom he takes the gospel to. So briefly in the last couple of minutes, what else does this say to us about the nature of conversion? Well, last week I suggested to you from chapter 1, particularly verse chapter 1, verse 10, 9 and 10, that conversion involves repentance and faith, a turning from idols 
to a turning to God and to now living in that fashion. What else do we see here? Well, I take it here that the question we still need to ask ourselves is, have we been converted? Have you, have I been converted? And I take it that the things that adds to this question of what it looks like to be converted, to be following the Lord Jesus Christ, are these three things. Firstly, from the passage we see that conversion involves walking in a manner that is worthy of God. And the example that's given here is of Paul's life with the believers. Life is now lived radically differently. That instead of walking in one direction, life is now walking in another direction. A life that is now lived pleasing to God. Secondly, I take it that it involves accepting the Word of God as the Word of God. The converted life takes the Word of God and recognises it for all its power. So my question is, is this shown by your attitude towards the Word of God? Do you listen to it? Do you seek to obey it? Will you cause life to be orientated around God's Word rather than just sort of trying to supplement your life with some of God's wisdom? What is it that you are passionate about? What is it that shapes and drives your life? And thirdly, I think, whom are you imitating? Are you working hard to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost? And also your Apostle Paul. For if you're a Gentile, then he is the one ultimately or derivatively from whom the Gospel has come to you. And take his words as the authoritative word of God given from the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you walking in a manner worthy of God? Are you accepting the word of God for what it is? And whom are you imitating? Finally, a model for Christian service. I think here the challenge for us is a deep one because it causes us to ask ourselves the question, what does this look like for me? Not just for when I leave uni. Next steps will help you give some trajectory to what that looks like. Do not try and sort out your Christian life once you've left uni. This very afternoon, friends, is the time to get your Christian life sorted. Commit once again to turning aside from a life lived worshipping idols to a life that now lives following the Lord Jesus and living a life which seeks to please Him. What is it that you are passionate about? Have you been converted and what of your manner of living? What example are you giving to other believers What example are you giving to those round about you, those who are not converted? Are you demonstrating the affection that the Lord Jesus Christ has shown through his apostle? Are you ready to share and not be a burden on others, both to the believers and to the unbelievers? I take it here the direction of not being a burden towards the believers is actually that you're willing to not be a financial burden among them. To the unbelievers, I take it the burden to share is the gospel itself. Are you willing, despite the face of possible or obvious suffering, ridicule, hardship, are you prepared to still share the gospel? And friends, lastly, what of your conduct? Are you urging yourself and others and being urged to live holy, righteous and blameless lives? Because we know, friends, the Lord Jesus will return and it could be this afternoon. Let's pray. Father God, in your kindness, we give you thanks that the Lord Jesus is coming back again. We thank you for that promise and we thank you for that trustworthy news. Father, we pray, please, for ourselves and ask that you would help us to live rightly while we await his return. Father, we thank you for your great gospel. We thank you for its power that it changes our life. 
Father, we pray, please, more and more that you would help us to live a life which has turned aside from living to please idols, but lives a life that pleases you. And we pray these things for the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.